Hey there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic for this episode to my Al Jazeera colleague, Mohammed Jamjoum. I'll be back soon. Last October, 270 creators, producers, showrunners, and writers signed a letter calling for systematic change for Latinx artists in the entertainment industry. The letter says that, quote, Hollywood power brokers are complicit in our exclusion. And it points out that even when Latinos make up 18.3% of the population in the United States, only 4.7% of film writers and 8.7% of television writers are Hispanic. The signatories clearly state that Hollywood needs to start hiring more Latinx talent, not only in front of the cameras, but also in decision-making roles like creators or showrunners. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, filling in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The lack of representation in Hollywood is nothing new. We've been here before. Do you remember the hashtag OscarsSoWhite? All 20 of the nominees in the acting categories are white, re-sparking the Twitter hashtag OscarsSoWhite. It was a social justice campaign, started in 2015, that pointed out how all of the lead and supporting Academy Award acting nominees that year were white. It's an issue in Hollywood because Hollywood doesn't make enough movies for women and for people of color. Today, things have changed a little bit, at least in front of the cameras. According to UCLA's latest Hollywood diversity report in 2019, the number of acting jobs for women and people of color has increased, and it looks more proportionate to the U.S. population. But when it comes to the people behind the scenes, though, there's some change, but not a lot. Latinos have historically and perpetually remained the most underrepresented minority in the motion picture industry in front and behind camera. By contrast, on the television side, the list of nominees for the most recent Emmy Awards showed how America still celebrates white representation more than anything. Not a single Latino or Latina actor or show got a nomination. In a year full of TV shows about the community like One Day at a Time, Vida, or Gentified, the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences didn't include any nominees in major categories that would celebrate the diversity of the Latinx people. Today, we're talking to two of the people who signed that letter asking for more Latinx representation. One Day at a Time's co-showrunner and co-creator Gloria Calderon-Kellett. The way I create jobs is to create shows. If I create shows, I hire more people of color, I hire more directors, right? And Netflix's hentified showrunner, Marvin Lemus. When we're talking about gentrification, I think the conversation really tended to be very black and white. In this episode, we'll explore how diverse the Latino, Latina, and Latinx communities are in the U.S., and how different their stories on the screen can be when they're the ones writing them. One Day at a Time is a remake of Norman Lear's 1975 classic sitcom of the same name. The new version centers around a Cuban family in Los Angeles, California, a single Army veteran nurse, her mother, and her two children. So you're single. No husband, no same-sex partner, no unmarried partner, no same-sex unmarried partner. And now we know all the different ways I'm single. 
<laughs> Gloria Calderon-Kellett, thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on. You all have won an Emmy for multicam editing, but there's so many fans of the show that are so irked that you have not been nominated in more categories, whether it's specifically for Rita Moreno or the rest of the cast or for you and Mike Royce, the whole team. At a time like this, when there's so much talk about diversity in Hollywood, when a show that's this important to its fan base and for representation doesn't get those kind of nominations from those big award shows, what does that say to you? I think there is a large conversation to be had about systemic racism in these very well-established older organizations. And I think it really starts with the marketing of the shows. My eyes were really opened about five years ago when we first started making the show. And then it would be the part where you're promoting and morning shows, nighttime talk shows, daytime talk shows would not have any of our actors on to promote the show. And that blew my mind. I was like, they're not having Rita Moreno on to talk about one day, what? And now I'm, I'm like, the glass has been shattered because I now watch shows with a different lens. I watch them realizing how many BIPOC people are given the microphone to even promote their shows when they make them. Not a lot, if you notice. So it was, that was really upsetting because we've done four seasons now. There's people every day on Twitter that are like, we just found your show. How did we not know about your show? We never heard of it. We hadn't been marketed to. So it really starts with the marketing. And then again, it just, then that just bleeds into everything else. Your show, it represents Latinx community in the U.S. There's been no other sitcom like this on TV before uh, that showcases one of the fastest growing populations in the country. And yet you've really struggled to keep it on the air, haven't you? Yes. I mean, what has that been like for you? There's such a joy in getting to make it. We're very aware of how special it is to even get to do it. So there's a gratitude in getting to make it, but then the frustration at trying to put it out there and not having it be uh, given the same. We're playing a game on an uneven playing field. And we look, there are times where we sit in that and we get sad about that and we get frustrated by that, but we don't have time to wallow because we still got to make stuff. So I just decided to tell people on Twitter, hey, guys, if you like the show, will you watch it and tell a friend? Because we're really fighting for our life here and we want to make more. And I think people were very struck by the honesty of that. I think that there's only so much we can do. I think certainly talking about it, having conversations like this, allow people to reframe their own lens and say, wait a minute, I should be seeing more people of color being able to promote their shows. I should be giving more, giving my eyeballs to those types of shows. So for me, hearing the different perspectives are so much more interesting to me. Somebody's like, what, what are you watching on these interviews? And it's always like, oh my gosh, I'm watching Insecure. I'm watching Never Have I Ever. I'm watching Rami. I'm watching, because for me, those are exciting. That's a perspective I haven't gotten to see. And that's so much more interesting to me than watching the same show again and again, which is every season I feel like the posters are the same. I'm like, didn't, it literally was that guy on a different solving crimes last year. We're watching that again. Okay. Doesn't seem that interesting to me personally, but I'm hoping that with this buffet options, hopefully people will find us and realize we're delicious too. <laughs> <laughs> Look, following you as closely as I do on social media, uh, one of the things that's really infectious, one of the things I really appreciate about you is just how enthusiastic you are about creating, writing, producing, directing. 
but also how honest you are about difficulties and the setbacks you as a Latina woman in Hollywood have faced. You really always want to show what it's like working and the struggle you go through. Why is that so important to you? Because I don't want people to be discouraged. A lot of times when I do panels, people always say, like, tell us your horror story. I'm like, I'll tell you my horror story, but I'd rather tell you about a way that I survived and conquered. Talking about the horror stories and sitting in our own trauma is also not going to move us forward. We have to say we've had trauma, but the only way to fight this is to fight. And that fighting for me is putting pen to paper. That fighting for me is getting into these rooms. That fighting for me is educating the next generation and making it easier for them to get information that I don't think should be privileged. Because that's one thing that I think is great about this country is the access to the library. That was something that in my childhood, we went to the library once a week at least. It's free information. You can read. You can teach yourself a great amount. And I think that especially for immigrant communities, the arts are not the first thing that they're encouraged to go into because it's scary. My parents now still are like, what do you do? How do you get money? Like they don't understand (laughs) how this works. And to let people know that the story is more than entertainment. The story is culture shift. Gloria says that there was an eye-opening moment when she started working in her first writer's room. The way I felt about myself, feeling shame for not fitting, for not being a size zero blonde boob popsicle, that it was old white men that were telling me that's what was desired. Mm. And once I got in that space, I was like, Oh, I don't care what all y'all think. Oh, but you've been telling me the story of what I'm supposed to be as a woman. And I thought that was fact and it's not. And so the more that you have people that look like you behind the scenes with a pen in their hand, the more that we can really represent the totality of our human experience and the totality of the great diversity of this world. The importance of having shows that display the diversity of society goes beyond ethnic representation. Often, shows like One Day at a Time are informative and bring awareness to those communities about the issues that matter to them, including politics. I asked Gloria about an episode they shot after COVID-19 lockdown stopped the filming of the fourth season of her show. Luckily, we were able to shoot one more episode. We did an animated episode. Mike and I had written an episode based on my experiences with some of my uh, conservative cousins, who I love very much, but we are politically not aligned, and the importance, I think, of talking politics with family. When he calls Mexicans drug dealers and rapists, you think that doesn't affect you? Do you think if your son was in that Walmart where the guy said he was there to shoot all the Mexicans, he would have stopped to ask if Flavio was Cuban before pulling the trigger? He wouldn't have cared because the president told him immigrants are dangerous and don't deserve to be here. But this feels like a moment in time where if we're really trying to build a bridge towards one another, then maybe we should start with the people we love and that we know. With that animated episode, uh, it seems like you all really wanted to make a point about how important it is for the Latinx community to register to vote and to actually vote, correct? Correct. Correct. It's vital. It's vital. You know, polling is very expensive and not a lot of polling is focused on the Latinx community. And Equis has done a really remarkable job of polling and realizing that a lot of the Latinx community and a lot of immigrants in general 
feel scared to vote because they feel like they're not smart enough to do so. Because I think oftentimes you're too afraid and so you don't go and your voice is not known. The same is true with the census. We did a whole census episode with Ray Romano. Hi, I'm from the census. Mom, why did you do that? A guy wanting a list of Latinos in my house? No thanks. The census is important for communities of color. We have to participate. It determines congressional seats and federal funding, and Latinos are always Oh, at this point, I'd rather be murdered. Open the door. That's how we started our season four, because so many uh, immigrant communities are afraid to, to give information about their families to the government. They're like, oh, that's why we left our country of origin. <laughs> We're afraid to do that. And it's no, you need to, because that really affects the next 10 years of the funding that your community gets. So we are trying to sneak in broccoli into the meal, <laughs> as it were. Gloria, I, I've heard you express worries about how COVID-19 may impact projects from people of color. Concerns that the strides made by, for example, Latinx writers, directors, producers, and performers could potentially be reversed at a time like this. So how real is that worry for you now? And how do you see that playing out? I think I'm very worried about it. First of all, COVID is, does seem to be hitting communities of color harder. I think maybe because a lot of our people are essential workers and are in situations where they're exposed to, to more people. But in terms of the money and where the money is going, some people say, follow the money. I say, follow the microphone. Who's given the microphone? Who is allowed to speak and continue telling stories and who is not? And right now, the shows that are in production that are trying to go back are going to be the big blockbuster movies that are typically more dominant culture and more Caucasian skewing. And that is my concern. I, I, I am hopeful that once once we find a system that is working, I mean, I'm hearing slowly that different shows are going back and there's different protocols that are being put into place to keep workers safe. Certainly no one should have to put their life in danger to put jokes on television. But my concern is after this is over that they will be marketing just the dominant culture shows and just putting those forth and not taking as many risks per se on shows about people of color. One Day at a Time first aired as a Netflix original series, but the streaming service canceled it after three seasons. Later, devoted fans started an online campaign to save the sitcom, and Pop TV, a Viacom CBS channel, decided to order a fourth season of the show. Unfortunately, since conducting this interview with Gloria, One Day at a Time has been canceled by Pop. But the first three seasons of the comedy will continue to live on on Netflix. Marvin Lemos created Hentified with Linda Yvette Chavez. The Netflix original show is about the people living in Boyle Heights, a Latinx neighborhood in Los Angeles that's an epicenter of Mexican culture on the West Coast. There's nothing gentrifiers hate more than being called gentrifiers. We're tapping into their biggest fear. Brown lesbians. White guilt. The show exposes the struggles of the characters navigating their culture and heritage while their neighborhood is gentrifying. 
Marvin, Latinx presence has been underrepresented in Hollywood, but also in so many, so much of the time, extremely stereotyped. Right now, there are very few shows on air with a majority Latinx cast. How hard was it for you as a content creator to make it in Hollywood? And how hard has it been to be able to tell these diverse stories? I guess I, I got to say I'm very lucky because there was the shows that were before us, that were just before us, that we were on the heels of One Day at a Time and Vida and Islos High. And they helped open those doors to make it possible to have this. But of course, it is challenging in so many ways of trying to make something in such a where there's very few Latinx shows because people are expecting us to be the representation for an entire community. And the Latinx community is very incredibly diverse in and of itself. And that diversity is shown in the use of language, too. The showrunners decided to use Spanish and English on the show. Basically, you don't show up to your hipster friend's dinner party without a bottle of wine, right? It's cultural. You hold we cracker, you clearly don't get it. I think we're very lucky that we were at a place like Netflix that was excited and ready to do something like this that had already made something bilingual with Narcos. And so it wasn't as a challenge to be like, yo, this show is going to be fully bilingual, which is just how we live. Like we live in a bilingual world. You know, if I'm speaking to my parents, they're speaking in Spanish and I'm speaking in English to them. So we wanted to be able to have that fluidly going back and forth. The idea for Gentified came to Marvin from his own experience as he found out that he was part of the gentrification of his neighborhood. really started when I was living in my first studio apartment out in Hollywood, and I was in a working-class Latino neighborhood, and it felt like home. It felt like the neighborhoods that I grew up in, where the elotero would come by every day, and there was, like, always loud music and people working on their cars outside. But then I slowly started to notice that there was a lot of hipsters moving in. But it started to make me realize that I'm like, oh, I am more a part of this wave of change than I am of the neighborhood. Even though I grew up like this and even though this feels like home, I'm in a different tax bracket. I'm, I have an education. I am an American citizen. I'm, I'm a part of this change and I don't know how much longer this neighborhood is going to look and feel like home. Boyle Heights, the neighborhood where Hentified is set, is also a character on the show. And that's when I learned about Boyle Heights. So Boyle Heights encompassed both. It had this Chicano identity in, in like in the businesses and in the artwork. But then, of course, you learn about the struggle that was going on there, gentrification, and how some people saw that as, and rightfully so, that it was a part of the problem of gentrification. And, and it's still changed. Even though it's keeping the identity of the neighborhood alive, there's still, it's still bringing about change and bringing in outsiders. The word Marvin uses here, gentification, is a Spanglish term. It's not part of the dictionary, but it's used by some Latinx. It comes from gente, which in Spanish means people, and gentrification, the process where a poor urban area is changed by wealthier people moving in. But gentification is used to describe those gentrifiers who are actually part of the community itself including other Latinx people who are trying to modernize those low-income neighborhoods. Learning about the struggle that business owners that, that were hentifying were going through, hentifying being that they're like, we're of the neighborhood and we're trying to keep the culture of the neighborhood alive, but we also deserve to be able to have fancy cocktails and expensive tacos and like fancy fusions of our food. But then people are challenging them on that. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, if I can't open a business in the neighborhood I grew up in, then like, where the hell do I belong? 
that question came up for me. I'm like, that's a question I've been asking my entire life. Like, where do I belong? Because I am never Mexican enough. I'm never American enough. So where do I belong if I can't do it in my own neighborhood? Gentrification really encompassed so many layers of issues that the Latinx community and I think just in general, POC and immigrants deal with and the working class. Like we really saw that it was issues of classism. It was capitalism and how it does it, it's working the way it's supposed to work, but it's not working for the people. The show tackles so much. I've heard you say in the past that it boils down to exploring community versus self. You all explore how gentrification affects the community of Boyle Heights, but also the identities of those characters who were born abroad versus those born and raised in the U.S. You're using gentrification as a metaphor for characters' identity issues as well. And that reflects a lot of how many in the Latinx community in the U.S. feel right now, right? Could you tell us more about that? Community versus self for us really encompass so much of the struggle of community can, you know, mean the neighborhood, but it also means family and versus doing the things and the responsibilities that you have to your family and to your community and how that could directly compete with what you want for yourself and as you're building your own identity. And I think, especially as children of immigrants, I think we experience that struggle so greatly where we want to chase the American dream and we want to build on all the sacrifices that our parents made for us. But of course, the American dream is very individualistic and it's very like do whatever it takes to be happy for yourself. And it directly competes with our immigrant family values of putting the family first and doing everything you can to always come back home. Okay, I got here as fast as I could. What's the emergency? Estamos preocupados por Chris. Hey, something's going on with him. The other day he bought generic peanut butter. Are you kidding me? Yo, I don't have time for this. Chris is going to be fine. Okay, he's a big boy with a big fat bank account. He can afford help like therapy or Whole Foods. What are you going to do? Get the white devil out of him? Too many people think that gentrification is just change. It's just, oh, change happens and it just is what it is. And ignore the very real human consequences, the very real ways that it affects people. And I think when you don't see Latinos on screen, when you don't see Latinxes on screen and immigrants on screen and normalize Spanish and, and, and being bilingual and normalize the working class in a lot of ways uh, and don't see Latino immigrants as people that laugh, people that have dreams, people that have desires, the people that have a full range of emotions are that are three-dimensional people. We wanted to normalize that and to humanize it so that like you're thinking a little bit deeper about, oh, my neighbor is a person and how am I, if I'm coming in with a little more privilege or a little more money or a little, whatever it is you're coming in with, like how am I affecting this community and how can I be a better neighbor? So you've been renewed for a second season by Netflix. Congratulations for that. Where do things stand right now in the production process? Has shooting been delayed uh, by COVID-19 shutdowns? Do you know how you all are going to go about uh, the resumption of filming? It's impacted everybody. I mean, there's a lot of very intense regulations. Like, I mean, making a TV show, producing something is already a miracle. Like, it's just so many different moving parts. But adding a pandemic on top of it and and... Of course, trying to make sure that everybody's staying safe and healthy. It is a challenge for sure. 
all the added precautions that we have to take definitely mean that we're going to shoot less, that we're not going to have as many hours to actually roll the camera. Are you at all worried that the strides made by Latinx writers, directors, and producers could be potentially reversed at a time like this? I can't predict that future, but I I hope that during this very difficult time, like the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the awakening that I see that people are just recognizing the institutionalized racism. And I hope that it just continues to build more and, and to build more opportunities and to Hollywood being able to recognize like, oh, yeah, like this is a systemic issue and we need to continue pushing for that. And so if anything, I actually am a little hopeful because I think what we're going to see in this, in the sense, in this renaissance, in the coming years, I think it's going to be something very beautiful and hopefully as unapologetic as possible in the storytelling. And that's The Take. While we're still home during this pandemic and relying on streaming services, be sure to check out the first season of Gentified and the first three seasons of One Day at a Time on Netflix. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with Nagin Oliai, Dina Kespe, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, and me, Mohamed Jimjoum. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the Takes executive producer. If you like the show, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back. <laughs>